turn, we'll march to the sea with the 33rd New Jersey Regiment, the Mutinous Regiment, on Civil War Talk Radio. In the great scheme of things, a minute isn't all that much, unless you happen to have a stroke. All of a sudden, those minutes count. Minutes that could mean losing your ability to talk, move, or walk. Which is why, if you can get help in time, your stroke can be treated. The warning signs of a stroke include sudden numbness or weakness of the face. If you experience this, call 911 immediately. Visit strokeassociation.org or call 1-888-4-STROKE today. A public service announcement from the American Stroke Association and the Ad Council. Looking for answers in real estate? We break it down for you. Each week, the Exeter Group explores how successful investors evaluate and acquire real estate to build their portfolio. From financing tips, tax and accounting strategies, and advice on how to control risk. The Exeter Group entertains and informs while divulging secrets used by the most successful investors. Tune in to the Exeter Group every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern on World Talk Radio Studio A. Hey, how you doing? Educational videos, top quality, right here. You'll never hear anyone selling education on the street. But with free family learning programs, you can get the education you need. Call 1-877-FAMLIT-1 for information on free learning programs. 1-877-FAMLIT-1. Check it out, check it out. We your GED right here, guaranteed, ma. Come on, check it out. Free family learning programs from the National Center for Family Literacy. Brought to you by the National Center for Family Literacy and the Ad Council. You're listening to World Talk Radio, where the world comes to talk. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and today we're talking with John Zinn, author of The Mutinous Regiment, the 33rd New Jersey in the Civil War. It's uh, one of the few regiments from the Garden State that fought in the Western Theater, uh, taking part in the Chattanooga campaign, the Knoxville sub-campaign, uh, and then the Atlanta campaign, where we left off at the end of the last segment with the 33rd caught at Peachtree Creek, uh, sent out ahead of the Union lines to uh, prepare a position for a battery, no one expecting anything much to happen that day and suddenly two Confederate divisions uh, launched by the impetuous John Hood roll over the 33rd and drive it back uh, to the Union lines. Uh, certainly the most uh, <coughs> difficult engagement uh, for the regiment in the war. Uh, but uh, in the aftermath, uh, the Union wins the Battle of Peachtree Creek, uh, wins all the battles around Atlanta, and, and captures that city. That was a, a, every one listening to the show will know, of course, that was a key moment in 1864 because it changed the conditions of the presidential campaign of that year. It, it let voters in the North feel that uh, the war was successful and led to the re-election of Abraham Lincoln. But his opponent, George McClellan, the Democratic candidate, did carry the state of New Jersey. Um, John, how did the, uh, the voter soldiers of the 33rd regard that campaign? It's hard to know. The, um, there are a couple. There are only a couple of them who make comments about it. Um, there are some for McClellan, uh, some for for Lincoln. The one thing to remember about New Jersey's uh, vote in the 1864 election is, like unlike most uh, northern states, New Jersey did not allow its soldiers to vote. 
there uh, Indiana didn't either, or they couldn't vote in the field at least. Uh, exactly, exactly. And Sherman, uh, in the museum in Indiana where I worked for a number of years, we had a, we had an original letter from uh, from Abraham Lincoln to General Sherman asking him to uh, furlough as many Indiana regiments as he could to go home and vote uh, in November, as many as he could do without jeopardizing the campaign. And uh, actually, the vote in Indiana was was earlier than November, as I recall. I think it was October. Um, there was no such letter to uh, Sherman asking him to send New Jersey regiments home. I've never seen anything like that, and perhaps the, the distance probably had something to do with it, too. I would think that the combination of the two, the, the distance and the fact that they weren't as likely to vote for Lincoln. Exactly. Uh, but you do quote one of Sherman's staff officers who said there are not, not many McClellan men... Uh, in the army, even in the New Jersey regiments, you know. So he does. So, so you've got that tidbit there. So, in general, certainly the soldiers uh, east and west voted overwhelmingly for Lincoln, and uh, and he was, of course, reelected. But this uh, leaves us still with uh, 33rd and Sherman's army in Atlanta, uh, facing the question of what to do. Uh, you've defeated Hood's army, but but he's not going away. And uh, when Hood decides to cut Sherman's supply line, Sherman says very well and marches into the heart of Georgia without a supply line. Uh, the 33rd goes along. Uh, what, what do they experience in the, the famous march to the sea? Well, it's interesting that the um, the march to the sea for the Union soldiers and for the 33rd was not really a very difficult campaign. Um, the weather was very favorable. I think it rained maybe two times in the in the six weeks or so they were marching. And they were able to march parallel to all the major rivers. So, and there was no Confederate opposition. So they're they're basically on a march. And um, and once they get outside of Atlanta, uh, they're not troubled for food supplies either. So um, it's not a difficult experience. It's the uh, the Carolina campaign that comes in the January and February of 1865 that is a much harder campaign. So they they get through, and as they march, uh, the, the march to the sea is legendary in American history. Um, if you, uh, you you go to any uh, southern town, and, and Sherman lives uh, still in, in folk memory as this monster who burned everything to the ground. Um, did the thirty third burn everything to the ground in its path? There's certainly no record of them having you know having done having done that kind of thing, um, there's certainly the suggestion that every unit had men who were involved in doing something one way or another. They were certainly involved in the things that, um, in the demolition of what would be considered either military targets or uh, things that would supply the Confederates. And one of, Sher one of Sherman's favorite targets were um, anything that uh, anything was owned or related to Confederate leadership. But there's, in the as I said earlier, there's really nothing in the way of letters or diaries from the 33rd from that campaign, and the, um, the commanding officers' dispatches and the official records don't go into a lot of detail. But I think we can assume that the, their experience was no different than this, the typical Union regiment. And that would certainly make sense. Uh, now, while we are limited uh, in, in this era uh, when they were cut off from, from communication with the North uh, and knowing what, what the soldiers were thinking individually, you mentioned there's there's always some soldiers who might might do things others wouldn't do. The 33rd has its share of characters of, mm -hmm. of individual characters. Certainly does. And uh, going back to the very beginning of the regiment when it was first founded, you mentioned uh, uh, someone who went by the name of Mickey Free. Correct. 
I was just reading a manuscript, uh, not yet published, that was the, the subject is Lincoln's train, uh, the, the months between Lincoln's election and his inauguration. Right. And it includes his train journey, and in that manuscript I was reading how Lincoln gave a talk, I believe in Newark, and someone jumped up on the stage uh, with him and was knocked back by a policeman. And then I read your book, and it's the same guy. Same story is there, yeah. yeah. Uh, That's a man by the name of Robert Harriet, who went by the name of Mickey Free, and supposedly has claimed he was a famous pedestrian and that he would walk great distances. Um, he's, excuse me. <coughs> he's mentioned periodically in newspaper articles. There's no correspondence about him from him. He eventually... Um, he gets himself detached from the regiment um, and is not. He doesn't participate in all of the campaigns, but he's certainly a character. And, and he, just, he keeps kind of popping up in the narrative every once in a while. And Correct. Wonder. Uh, he's mentioned. All of a sudden, his name will come up in a newspaper article. That's typically how he his name comes up. Yes. So, so uh, a, a self promoter, a, uh, a character of the type. Uh, another one, uh, maybe less of a public figure, but one who certainly appears. Uh, uh, regularly in your story is William Lloyd. Uh, I, I gather you had a, a rich collection of, of letters that Lloyd must have written back to his wife. Yes, there are about 50 letters from William Lloyd that survive, and it's by far the most detailed um, detailed correspondence from uh, any member of the of the regiment. And uh, William is also a um, a unique character. Um, he had apparently deserted from the 97th New York in June of 1862 and then enlisted in the 33rd, and he makes noises throughout his letters about deserting again, although he never does it. Um, but his, he, uh, he's not somebody who withholds anything. If he's not happy, he lets his wife know about it in no uncertain terms. Um, every, apparently she wrote to him at one point um, asking if she could go out with somebody, and he wrote back and said, if you go out with anybody other than Mr. Smith and Mr. Jones, then I will totally disown you. And that sort of gives you a sample of their correspondence. He is very frank. and he, uh, As you point out, he, he's not unwilling to admit uh, when, when he's scared or when he doesn't like uh, being in combat. Uh, he, he's had enough of it after a short time. Yeah, he, he certainly doesn't hold back on any of his feelings, of whether, you know, whether it's about combat or about his commanding officer or, or anything of that nature. Actually, I'm... I'm working now on a possible project to see if um, if we could publish those letters. I'm fortunate enough to um, be working with a, uh, a fine young man named Alex Smith who took on the uh, onerous task of transcribing the letters, and uh, that's a project I would like to see if it could be, come into publication. Well, that would be a useful resource for uh, for Civil War scholars uh, wanting to look at that at this regiment and this campaign. and. And more generally, uh, as we see people doing more and more now, looking at uh, the soldiers and their families as as a unit, not just the uh, uh, for what they tell us about the war, but what they tell us about civilian life in that era. Uh, unfortunately, of course, we rarely have the the wives' or mothers' letters to the soldiers because they couldn't carry a library around with them. That's exactly correct. We have like 50 letters from uh, William Lloyd, and there's one brief note from his wife, and that's the only time we see her point of view in all of that. But that's a viewpoint that I think perhaps we can try to reconstruct from 
journals and other and other tools. I would really like to try to look at Lloyd's letters from his experience and also what his wife must have been experiencing back in New Jersey. For example, him not having been paid for 11 to 12 months and what that would mean to her with winter coming on. That, that is an interesting question. Uh, as you point out, when the soldiers finally get to uh, Savannah and they get paid, they get paid thousands of dollars uh, all at once uh, to the whole regiment. But that means their families were surviving all this time with no income. That's over. correct. And then once they get paid, the question is, how do they get the money home to New Jersey? Because it's cash. And not, you know, it's not a check or something like that. Um, how did they get it home? Um, typically, chaplains took it home. Uh, there's an unfortunate story of a New York regiment of a chaplain taking thousands of dollars home on the train and being pulled off the train and robbed. Um, but the 33rd New Jersey did not uh, suffer from that uh, that experience. There was a, a man in Newark, um, a local businessman by the name of Marcus Ward, who was known as the soldier's friend. And he basically set up a business of advancing uh, money to families in anticipation of them being paid, uh, their soldiers getting their pay. And I think he probably kept a lot of families going throughout the war. That, that uh, I guess, the, the system <clears throat> find, finds a way that you can, you can get an advance, uh, get some interest, make it pay for itself. And Take care of people that way. The uh, after Savannah, the the army marches north. You mentioned briefly the Carolina campaign, uh, and here the, the army doesn't have to fight the Confederates anymore, but they they certainly have to fight the terrain and the weather. Absolutely, I mean, Sherman remarked after the war that um, the the, the, the uh, March to the Sea captured the, popula the popular imagination, but it was child's play compared to the Carolina campaign because this time the weather is horrible. It rains almost all the time, and they're marching where they have to cross all these rivers that are now flooded, and uh, it's just one day in the mud after another. One of the uh, commanders of the 33rd um, put something in one of his dispatches about haul up stuck in the mud and and I wrote in the book that I think that probably describes the whole campaign. Well they uh they, they manage somehow building bridges and corduroying the roads and uh making their way north uh through South Carolina up toward North Carolina. You mentioned the incident at uh Winsboro, South Carolina. Uh the the town where they they left some men behind to guard the town. That's not actually the 33rd. It's another unit that um, they leave some. Um, the civilians are concerned about um, the town being vandalized by soldiers, I guess, who are no longer part of any army. The, um, and and they ask the uh, Union commander to leave some soldiers to guard it, and they do that. And of course, then the Confederates come back to the town, and um, the civilians intercede for the Union soldiers so that the uh, Confederate commander lets the Union soldiers go under escort, recognizing that they've protected the uh, protected the civilian population. Fairly unique experience, I would think. It's a, a rare moment of. Uh uh, chivalry and civilization in a, a, a brutal campaign where the civilians are traumatized both by the Union soldiers and uh, the Confederate cavalry. Uh, there are, of course, many accounts where the, 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 so the civilians hardly know which to, to fear more. Exactly. Uh, both are very hungry and both take everything they can. Well, in North Carolina, the 33rd New Jersey finally uh, gets the news they're waiting for that Lee has surrendered and not long after that, that uh, Johnston surrenders. Uh, how? What happens next? How do they get home? 
Well, they have one more long march to go. They march to Washington, D.C., and at that march, the, uh, they're moving at a ra- the Union Army moves at a rapid pace, sometimes like 20, 25 miles a day. They end up in Washington in time for the uh, Grand Review, um, I think it's the 23rd, something like that, of May of 1865. They take part in that, and then, um, then they wait two more months before uh, they finally take trains back to New Jersey. Interestingly enough, you talked earlier about the friction between the Eastern and Western armies. There's one report of some friction uh, after the Grand Review where the uh, New Jersey troops in the 33rd are acting like they're part of the Western Army. They're making fun of the Army of the Potomac. Um, So they've obviously come full circle and now consider themselves part of Sherman's Western Army. And uh, just to, to put some closure on it, they also get their uh, their flag back, their, the state colors. And what happens is that um, a Union force goes into the Confederate archives, finds the flag. It has on it the name of the Confederate soldier who captured it, and it's by I guess by grace another New, a New Jersey officer who captures who bring who recaptures it and puts his name on it as well. So it's finally returned to them. And it's returned to the 33rd. So they do redeem that early history of, of mutiny and desertion with uh, a long and honorable participation in, in Sherman's army. Especially given the fact that it was the ones, you know, those ones who, who stayed really served with distinction. And, and, and they, they did indeed. This uh, brings us appropriately enough to the end of our show. We're out of time too soon as always. But uh, I will recommend to our listeners that for uh, a very interesting story of a regiment with an unusual career. You'll want to take a look at the Mutinous Regiment, the 33rd New Jersey in the Civil War. It's by our guest today, John G. Zinn. John, thanks for being on the show today. Thank you for having me, Jerry, and thanks for the recommendation. And listeners, thanks for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Mm-hmm.